We good? We good in the back? All right. Now my, my voice is a little hoarse because I feel like I was screaming my guts out to try and hear myself sing back there. But if you don't know, my name is Dave. Uh, I get to serve as the high school pastor right here at the Central Campus, which is a lot of fun. And uh, part of my job is I get to communicate quite a bit, but tonight's particularly special for me. Uh, and I'm really excited to be here in this room because rarely do I get to communicate in a room full of my peers. Uh, so if you don't know me, I'm 24, and so we're, we're in this together. I'm not speaking tonight from a, a point of me being farther along in the journey as you are. I'm just speaking out of what God's teaching me currently too. And so I'm excited for what we're going to get to do tonight. And I hope, I hope you feel in the room that the atmosphere is a little bit different than when you first walked in. And uh, we, tonight is really fun for me because we just get to be a part of something bigger than what's happening in this room. Like we get to partner with heaven in what the mission is here on earth. Like we should be excited about that. We should be pumped about that. We should be expectant in that. And so knowing, knowing the implications of what's going to happen in this room tonight, I just wanna take a second and invite the Holy Spirit to be here because you know this, the truth is, the room could be packed. We could be adding as many seats as we need to. And if the Holy Spirit isn't here, it's empty. It's empty. So Father, thank you that we get to be here. May we never take it for granted being a part of a community like this. Jesus paid a price so that we could do this right here. And we acknowledge that. Father, would you move in a new way tonight? Would you mark us? Would you be so kind as to make this a service, one that is so marking that we could never possibly leave the same? Allow us to look more like Jesus as we leave. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in a series right now called Long Story Short. And this week, we're gonna be looking at a story that I guarantee most of us in the room have uh, heard at one point or another. But I wanna look at it right off the top because it's gonna be important as we have a conversation about this story throughout the night to understand two things. One, what's in the story? and one, what's not in the story. So let's take a look. It's in John 13. We're gonna start in verse five. It says, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you're never gonna wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now skip down to verse 12. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. So you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You ever been in a no-win scenario before? And I'm not talking about like when your significant other asks if the pair of jeans they have on makes them look fat. Like a real life no-win scenario. Uh, recently, I found myself in a situation that was pretty much as bad as it gets when it comes to no-win scenarios. Caveat, this was not at church. This was not like anything to do with my job. Uh, I was in a different week. My schedule had been kind of rocked. And so I was gonna be set to spend uh, three to four days in a row in a room with a group of people that I do not normally spend time with. 
So I'm obviously pumped about that week going into it. So when you get into a room like that, like when you're spending so much time in such close proximity with people that you do not know, um, you're a little bit on edge because like things start to get heated. And what I quickly realized is that you get a read of the room pretty quickly. Like when you're so close together for three or four days in a row, you kind of figure everybody out. Well, I figured out pretty quickly that there was a girl in the room with me who, uh, she had a lot of opinions, a lot of very strong opinions on everything. And I I found this out pretty quickly uh, because we were in day one, like this is not, we didn't ease into this. Like day one, me and the rest of the group are sitting there and out of nowhere, she begins to express her displeasure with the group because we weren't doing things the way she preferred. So I'm a pastor, right? Having tough conversations is a part of my job. And so I think I'm gonna involve myself. So I step up and I'm like, I'm gonna have a conversation with her about all this stuff that seems to be going on. What's really going on back there? So I step up, have this conversation. Long story short, it did not go well for me. And, but we figured it out, we moved past it, like things were okay, whatever. And, and it, was, it was good for about 12 hours until we got back in the room again. And then we get back in the room and again, we start to be, like, make some decisions, do some things. And all of a sudden she begins to express her displeasure with the group because we're not doing things how she prefers. But I'm thinking to myself, I've learned, I've learned this time around. Like I'm not gonna make the same mistake as last time. So I'm like, last time I said something and it didn't work. So this time I'm not gonna say anything. And I didn't not a word, even when she asked me a direct question, twice. (laughs) Long story short, it did not end well for me either. And so I'm like, in the aftermath of getting absolutely roasted by this girl, who's like, I'm like, what in the world is happening right now? My brain is just going so many different places and I need closure. And I I just, am like, I got it. I got to know. So the next day, day three, I walk in And before anything could even happen, I approach her and I say, hey, listen, today you're gonna get upset about something and I just wanna know when you get upset, how would you like for me to respond to you? Because day one, I said something and you did not like that. And day two, I did not say anything and you didn't like that either. So today, when something happens that you don't like, I'd like to know how would you prefer me to respond? Surprisingly enough, that did not go well for me either. And after I cooled off, I was like going back and processing through that that time. And I was like so upset about things. I was trying to figure out what I could have done differently to make the situation better. But what I realized very quickly was that it was never about me. Like it did not matter what I did. She was going to find a way to be offended about it. You have anybody in your life like this? Like no matter what you, it doesn't matter what you do. No matter what you do, they're going to find a way to be offended about it. You say something, they're offended. You say nothing, they're offended you didn't say anything. You approach them and have a conversation about how you wanna make your relationship better with them. They're offended that you thought that your relationship needed improving. Like there is no winning with this person. And don't act like we don't all have the picture of a face of a person in our head right now that we're thinking about. And I guarantee you it's probably different than everybody else in the room. And the reason for that is because we live in an offended world, true? Like, don't you just, aren't you just tired of everyone being so offended about everything? And the problem that that presents for us, if we claim to follow Jesus, is that we live in this offended world, but we believe in offensive gospel. So how do you reconcile the two together when you have an offensive gospel that you're trying to live out and an offended world that you live in? Because if you didn't know, the gospel at its heart is incredibly offensive 
Like we're no longer the hero of the story. We needed saving and we can't save ourselves. Ultimately, it calls for us to change. You can't experience the gospel and stay the same. And it's offensive. And if you're like me, you have days where you feel like you're in a no-win scenario because you're trying to figure out how to live like Jesus calls us to live and how to be acceptable in society. And you don't know how to bring the two together. And here's what I've noticed of most church people. In an offended world where the greatest sin is stepping on somebody else's toes and offending them, that tension puts pressure on us to shift our greatest priority from obedience to acceptance. We'll stop asking what does scripture say about this and we'll start wondering what is socially acceptable. We'll stop asking what does Jesus have to say on the subject and we'll start to think about what will they think? And if we can be honest, after we've made compromise after compromise from being obedient to being acceptable, if we can look in the mirror for just a second after so many compromises, what you'll realize is that maybe, just maybe, you've stopped living the offensive gospel of Jesus and you've started living cultural morality, but you make yourself feel better about it because you do it in Jesus' name. And cultural morality is not the offensive gospel of Jesus. And here's what I know. We all regret compromise. We all regret compromise. Nobody wakes up in the morning looking forward to the moment in that day that they're going to compromise. But here's what I've also known in my life is that compromise is almost habitual for me. It's a cycle that I can't seem to get out of. And the question that we're always left with on the other side of compromise is why? Why did I do that? Why did I feel like that was cool? Why did, why, why did I allow that? And the why question for me was actually answered a couple weeks ago of all places in the grocery store. I, just as a caveat, my wife's in the room. I do not grocery shop often. Okay, so don't feel like I was out like getting groceries for the family. You'll, uh, you'll understand in a minute. I'm in the grocery store and um, my mom growing up always used to tell me not to go grocery shopping on an empty stomach. Anybody else's mom like really adamant about that? I don't understand why that was like one of the real like truths of being a human that she really wanted me to know, but she did not want me to go grocery shopping on an empty stomach. And I, it just like, was like a weird thing that my mom said. I never like believed it. I never really understood it until three weeks ago, I was in the checkout line at Publix buying three pints of ice cream for myself. And it hit me. By the way, if you're not buying Jenny's ice cream at Publix, what are you doing? Come on. I'm in the checkout line, always self-checkout. And it hits me as I'm like scanning these three pints of ice cream. I'm like, man, this is a lot of ice cream. I don't even, I don't, I'm gonna do it, but I don't know if I should. When you're shopping on an empty stomach, you don't buy what's sustainable or what you need, you buy what's available. And just like you have an appetite for food, just like you have an appetite for food, your soul has an appetite. And what our souls crave is love, joy, and peace. And just like me going through the grocery store on an empty stomach, if you're going out into the world and interacting with people and you haven't been satisfied on a soul level where you can find that love, joy, and peace that you crave, you're not going to, set, you're not going to find your love, joy, and peace from a source that's sustainable. You're going to find it from a, a source that's available. Meaning you're going to start looking for love, joy, and peace from the people who are around you. And they are also looking for love, joy, and peace from the people who are around them. And it creates this culture of insecurity because we're all looking for the same thing and we're trying to find it in people who can't give it. And when it comes to this love, joy, and peace, 
if you're settling, you'll begin to settle yourself into performing for love when in reality, true love isn't based on what you do. It's based on who God says you are. And when it comes to finding joy, you'll settle for an available source of joy and you'll look for people and things that you feel like give you joy when in reality, true joy isn't a feeling, it's a choice. And if you're settling for a, 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 an available source of peace, you'll begin to look in a GPA, in a bank account, in the number of likes, in the number of followers, in the number of subscribers, in job security to give you peace when in reality, real peace doesn't come from external circumstances. We all need and crave this love, joy, and peace. And if you're not getting it on a regular basis from the one person who can give it, I promise you, you're settling. And I promise you, you're compromising. And I promise you, it's not enough for you. And if you're not careful, you'll be tempted to think that this issue is a new thing. But if you look closely at John 13, you'll see that this is just one great example and a long line of examples of Jesus battling the same exact pressure, the pressure to compromise uh, uh, that we do. See, in, in, in John 13, at the time of Jesus, it was a regular thing for a teacher or a rabbi to have a group of students or disciples. And so Jesus at the time was not the only person who had a following. And when you were talking about the relationship between a teacher and a student, something that would often be said is this phrase, at the feet of. At the feet of. What it meant was it was describing a relationship between teacher and student where the teacher would be up high and the student would literally sit at the feet of the teacher and it was showing that the student knew that the teacher had something to give and the student had nothing to do but receive. And so when we're in the story of John 13, everyone in the, this is a cultural norm, everyone in the room knew that this was the thing, including Jesus. So you can imagine the confusion on the disciples' face when Jesus suddenly stands up from his chair and suddenly he sits at their feet and he begins to take the low seat. You can imagine the mystery around the disciples trying to figure out in their head, what in the world is Jesus doing? This is never heard of. This has never been done before. And that's exactly why as Jesus gets over to Peter and he kneels down to wash Peter's feet, Peter looks down at him in disgust and says, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? See, even when it came to Jesus, the one and only son of God, Messiah, savior of the world, even him, he still had people who had an opinion on how he should live his life. He was the only one, yet everyone thought that they had the right opinion on how Jesus should live his life. And it was offensive to Peter that Jesus would take the low seat. It offended Peter that Jesus would take the position of a student. What would people think about Peter if they knew that the guy that he followed was doing this? How would it look on Peter if the person that he claims to be his teacher is actually sitting at the feet of his own students? What would, this, what would this look like for him? Peter's offended and he's letting Jesus know about it. Because as Jesus goes, he's saying, no, 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 Jesus, this isn't what the Messiah is supposed to do. Get up, get up, get up. No, 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 this isn't what we do. Look, you stand up. This isn't what rabbis do, Jesus. And I can actually identify with Jesus in this moment. Because if we're honest... I think most of us would say that the hardest place to live out the offensive gospel of Jesus, like to actually do what Jesus did, is around the people who we admire and respect the most. When it comes to like doing things that people don't understand, 
It's hardest to not value acceptance over obedience when it comes to the people whose opinions you value the most. It's the easiest place to compromise. And I, um, I grew up as a pastor's kid, and maybe some of you know my story, maybe some of you don't. I grew up as a pastor's kid, and my dad was my pastor from the time I was born until I went into ministry myself. And um, I remember the day I got a phone call explaining that my dad had been fired from the church that he had been at for 16 years as the senior pastor because he was emotionally and verbally abusing my mom. And I remember, I remember having a phone call with my dad afterward and hearing the hopelessness in his voice, not because he was upset with the state of his marriage or remorseful for what he had done, but he was just so embarrassed, so, um, so sad that his failure was so public. And I remember our phone calls in the days following that when my mom filed for divorce and my dad had to move out of the house. But what I remember most is on April 17th, 2019, when I was driving home from here on 316 and I got a call from my mom that my dad had killed himself. See, it's easy to think that talking about compromise is a little thing. It's, it's easy to think that the consequences of compromise are small. And what I'm learning is that my dad's decisions didn't just affect him. They affected me. And they affected my family. He didn't hurt just him. And listen, when we compromise, we don't hurt just us either. See, my dad had made so many compromises, little by little, that eventually he got to the point where he valued acceptance over obedience. And he began to find his love, joy, and peace in the people that were around him, causing his life to be as high or as low as the people's opinions he was nearest. And what happens? What happens when people's opinion of you hit rock bottom? See, what I hope you catch what I hope you catch that my dad never did is that if you look at this story in John 13, Jesus washed feet, but he did not kiss them. I wish I wish my dad was sitting in this room and could hear this. But he's not, but you can. You can, and hear me, Jesus washed feet, but he did not kiss feet. And what I mean by that is that there's a huge difference between serving people and enabling them. And Jesus absolutely served people, no question, but he absolutely did not compromise truth either. Jesus absolutely did not enable people. And it's important for us to understand considering the offended culture that we live in 
because people think that if Jesus were to live in 2019, this story would be all about Jesus kissing people's feet. But that is not what Jesus did. <laughs> See, have you, noticed, have you noticed people around you have an opinion on how you should live your life for Jesus even though they don't follow Jesus themselves? Have you noticed that people have an interpretation of scriptures that they've never read before? And if we're not careful, people's opinion of what they think Jesus should be like can become our opinion of what we think Jesus is like. And if you're not intentional about making sure that you're consistently getting a dose of love, joy, and peace from the one source who can actually give it to you, you'll end up finding yourself doing things, saying things, being okay with things that you never thought you would be. All because, all because you're looking for what you need and what's available and not what's sustainable. And what a lot of us don't understand, I think, is that Jesus had the same opportunity to make the same compromises that we do. Like he faced the same pressure to be acceptable as we do. And a lot of times I wonder if this story began with Jesus taking off his robe and, and putting water into a basin and washing feet, if that's where the story began, I, I, a lot of times I wonder if Jesus actually would have made the compromise. But we have, what we have to catch is that the story did not start with Jesus washing feet. See, John writes this starting in verse one. It says, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already tempted Judas, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew where his authority came from, that he had come from the God. He understood he was sent and was returning to God and he knew who he was answering to. Knowing this, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after all of that, don't miss that, after all of that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Please understand, this is not the preface of the story. This is the story. Washing feet is the sequel. But the story begins here. And a lot of times when, you, when we talk about this passage, it's, it's all about like making sure that you're washing feet. And we think that Jesus was setting an example of like, you know, you need to be serving. But I wonder, I wonder if this passage is actually Jesus setting an example, not that we serve, but to remind us who we serve. Like, I wonder if this is way less about the disciples and way more about Jesus. And some of us have been fighting a losing battle when it comes to living out our faith because we've been living with a whole lot of grace and sacrificing a whole lot of truth because grace is acceptable, but truth is offensive. And Heather talks about this a lot, but I think it's worth revisiting. Love the love of Jesus is equally grace 
and equally truth. And grace minus truth is enabling. And truth minus grace is judgment. Awesome handwriting. The gospel that Jesus lived out was 100% grace, 100% truth, and nothing less. There is no middle ground. 100% grace, 100% truth. And I know, I know that so many of us in the room want the same thing. We want to see families changed. We want to see relationships be reconciled. We want to see our campuses change. We want to see our jobs get better. We, we want to see it in Gwinnett as it is in heaven. But none of that happens by maintaining the status quo. None of that happens by taking the road of least resistance. None of that happens by doing what's acceptable. It requires change. And Jesus led by example in showing us that the only way that we're going to have the audacity to stand up in the face of opposition and to settle what Jesus would do is to understand who our source is and who we are actually serving. Because listen, the line between washing feet and kissing feet is very thin and it can get blurry really fast. It can get blurry really fast. And please believe me when I say I'm preaching to the choir. I know all too well how easy it is to compromise in Jesus' name. But the more I compare what my life looks like to what Jesus' life looked like, the more I realize that Jesus cared less about people's opinions than I do, and he cares more about obedience than I do. Jesus cares less about people's opinions than I do, and he cares way more about obedience than I do. And, all right, I'm gonna go off script. Can I just say something? Are we good? Can, we, can, like, can, I, can I do it? Okay, can I say something? Your relationship with Jesus is not measured by how little conflict you have with everyone around you. Like, you do not... The measure of how close you are to Jesus and how well you're doing in your walk with Jesus is not by how few people dislike you. And so many of us are walking around so afraid to offend people, so afraid to hold people accountable, so afraid to say the truth that is within us because we're afraid that we'll lose our source of love, joy, and peace. And I wonder how many people we encounter on a daily basis, I wonder how many people we see in a classroom, how many people we see on the job who are waiting desperately for someone to love them enough and deliver them the truth that they don't wanna hear but they need to hear. And I wonder how many of us are missing opportunities because we're waiting to deliver the truth that's good for them when it's convenient for us. It's never gonna be convenient for us as long as you're finding your source of love, joy, and peace in the people that you're around. It's never gonna be convenient for you. It's never gonna be comfortable for you. But it's not about us. It's not about us. Understanding that Jesus washed people's feet but didn't kiss them frees us up to serve and love people without enabling them. And washing feet doesn't mean getting pushed over. Washing feet doesn't mean staying silent. Washing feet means standing in the face of opposition and delivering truth because it's what's best for the people around you and not what's most comfortable for you. That's what washing feet is. And we need more people to be like Jesus and washing feet. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. But I wanna challenge us because I, I, I we need to get this. We have to get this. 
if we want to be a people that brings about revival, then we got to start acting like it. Alex Carney in pre-service prayer said a, a line that I will never forget. We need to start acting like revival instead of asking for revival. I think revival starts in understanding who it is we serve. And, and, and newsflash, we do not serve the people that are around us. You do not answer to a single person that is in this room when your life is over. So why in the world are we so worried? Why are we so worried as we go through the daily on, on stepping on people's toes and, and trying not to offend people when we, at the end of the day, we don't answer to them. We don't answer to them. And I wonder how many things, we, how many opportunities we've missed, how many conversations with Jesus we're gonna have to have because Jesus said, while you were busy tiptoeing around people and not like trying not to offend people, you didn't deliver truth that I put you there to do. You didn't do the thing I assigned you to do. The reason that you were there was to deliver this truth, but you were too busy trying to get accepted by the people who were there. And so here's my challenge for us. Tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, before you head off to whatever you're doing, take some time, create some space, and get alone. And settle in yourself who your source is. Settle in yourself who it is today that you will serve. Settle where it is that you're gonna find your love, joy, and peace. And then the next day when you get hungry again, go back for more. And the day after that, when you get hungry again, go back for more and keep going back. Our world isn't gonna be changed by rallies. It's not gonna be changed by marches. It's not gonna be changed by public spectacles. Our world's gonna be changed when a group of people decide individually that they are going to choose each and every morning who their source is. It will not change by a big spectacle. World-changing moments happen behind closed doors in private. And you can have a world-changing moment that happens tomorrow morning. Because the, the challenge the comp the, like the pressure to compromise is going to be there tomorrow. And I promise you it's gonna be there the day after that. And I promise you it's gonna be the day after that. Whether or not opposition is coming is not up for question. It's gonna be there. What is up for question is will you be ready when it comes? What will you do when opposition knocks on your door? And will you have what it takes to do what you've been called to do even in the face of that opposition? as I was thinking about um, how we should wrap up our time together and talking about choosing our source and remembering that our love, joy, and peace comes from the only God who could ever give it, it feels appropriate. It feels appropriate that we should just have a, a moment where we're just reminded of how good our source is. Have a moment to be reminded that, that God is madly in love with you that his love for you is not dependent on your performance tomorrow. That as, as badly as you crave love, joy, and peace, he is equally able and willing to give it to you. So I want us to stand together. And there's not gonna be a big come to Jesus moment where we come down to the altar and, and, and we confess a bunch of stuff. That's not gonna be what we do. What I want for you to do 
is to have one of those world-changing moments right here, right now with God. Settle in your soul who your source is. Tell yourself right now that tomorrow when you're tempted to find your love, joy, and peace from someone around you, where you're gonna look. And I think for some of us, we've just been in church for so long that we forget how good God really is. And so as we sing over the next couple of minutes, let yourself be reminded of how good God is. Allow yourself to see for the first time, maybe in a long time, how madly in love Jesus is with you and then receive what he's got for you.